Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of My Time Capsule, where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the actor Larry Dan. Now, from 1984 to 1992, Larry played Sergeant Alec Peters in 227 episodes of the ITV police series The Bill, which made him one of the best-known actors on TV. But by that stage, he'd already had one hell of a career, as he recently detailed in his autobiography, Oh, What a Lovely Memoir, so-called because an important part of Larry's career was spent working at the Theatre Workshop in Stratford East, where he appeared in numerous plays directed by the great Joan Littlewood, including Oh, What a Lovely War, original cast, no less. His acting career actually began by a fluke, with a chance knock at the door looking for kids to work in films. He made his film debut aged five in Adam and Evelyn with Gene Simmons and Stuart Granger, and he worked as an extra before training at the Corona Stage Academy. As a youngster, he had a cameo playing a schoolboy in Carry On Teacher and appeared in two films with Norman Wisdom, Trouble in Store and The Bulldog Breed. He later rejoined the famous Carry On series of films for Carry On Behind, Carry On England and Carry On Emmanuel, the one I was not allowed to go and see when I was a boy. His other film roles include What a Crazy World, All Neat in Black Stockings with Susan George, The Body Stealers starring George Sanders, Before Winter Comes with David Niven, Our Miss Fred with Danny LaRue, Ghost Story with Marianne Faithful, and The Bunker starring Anthony Hopkins as Hitler. And of course, besides all the episodes of The Bill, he's done far too much television and theatre work to even bother mentioning it. So let's just take it for granted that Larry Dan is what we actors call a proper actor. And listen to the five things from all those incredible experiences he'll choose for his time capsule. Here is Larry Dan. There you are. You've done it. Have I done it? I'm, I'm rubbish it. at this. Mike, I'm crap at this, I tell you. <laughs> hey. hey! How lovely to see you. And nice to meet you, Michael. Wow. You have been a face in my life for, well, the whole of it. Um, Mike, I'm sorry. It's like a nightmare. You're not going to sue me, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my own back in this episode. Excellent. And they sent me a proof copy of the memoirs. It's lovely. I mean, as it says on the cover, it, oh, yeah. what a lovely memoir. Yes. 
It's my voice. It's my voice, which I'm it, pleased It really is your voice, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's very much, you can tell the fact that it's from your memory. It's not overly researched. When you don't know, you say, I don't know. I don't know. The greatest failure in my life, to be honest, Michael, is I never took notes or diaries or anything. Nothing. I do have a collection of programme, theatre programmes that I've been in. And I use those, of course, as research. And, of course, yeah. IMBD and things like that helped. And I didn't know what I was going to say, what I was going to do. I had some yeah, little jottings and things. And mm-hmm. I just, I went, it took me months and months and months. And I tell you what, I could have 900 pages in the end. I had so much stuff. I know. I'm sure you could write a book entirely about yeah. the time with Joan Littlewood. Oh, yes. That's fascinating, those chapters. 14 years I had with her. Wow. Joan was in my life for 14 years. Yeah. Letting me know how, how bad I was and how good I was. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all need that. Yeah. I have a story of when she took me down. She took me down a hell of a way. Uh, she used to do that to, to actors. I mean, I remember when she did it to George Sewell. That's not in the book. We were at the Edinburgh Festival doing um, Henry Fourth, Part One and Two, prior to going to Broadway. We'd left the West End. We'd done the Theatre of Nations in Paris. And so she wanted to do this at the Edinburgh Festival. Well, George and I, you know, Chuck, we got on together very well. And uh, we were going out for a walk to walk up, um, what's that, Albert's, that hill in Edinburgh, what's it called? Arthur's Seat. Arthur's Seat, that's the one. Mm. Yeah. And we were going there and he suddenly, suddenly broke down with me. He said, he said, what am I going to do? I said, what do you mean, George? He said, what, what am I going to do? I can't do anything right for Joan. I said, well, I don't see that. And he was almost in tears, bless his heart. And uh, I thought, wow. But my word, a few months later, I understood. Really? She did it to you? Yes. And I know why she did it. And I thank her for doing it. I was getting too big for my boots. I was a 22-year-old, 23-year-old actor, you know, now going off to Broadway with Joan and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and everything you do is unbelievably talented. Absolutely. And of course, yeah. it wasn't. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't working like she wanted me to work, you know. Yeah. No. Joan was a genius. There's no doubt about it. She was a genius of the theatre. Well, I look forward to talking to you about it as okay. we explore the things that you're going to put into a time capsule. Yeah, oh, that was difficult. <laughs> was it? Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> what do I put in? Am I allowed to put in things that I haven't got? You are. You can have them back again. Well, good. Yeah. All right, well, let's do it. Let's, uh, yeah, let's please start do, Matthew, yeah. Let's start with number one. Let's go for it. Well, it actually is the Teddy Bear's Picnic, the song. Ah, yeah, yeah. Now, I never heard it. I was born during the war and I didn't know my dad till I was about five because he he ended up in uh, Berlin. He became a major and he was doing repatriation and all that sort of stuff. So he didn't come back after 45, late 46, I think, when I first met my father. And my mum had got for me to be played on the radio with Uncle Mac, who had a radio program for children on a Saturday morning, played the Teddy Bear's Picnic for Larry Dan. And I missed it. I didn't hear it. Oh, no. So I want that there. So when I get there, I can go and hear it. Oh, do you know, we can, I'm, I'm sure we should put it in there with the introduction. Yeah, absolutely. He was called Uncle Mac. I remember listening to him. I can remember now listening to him, not playing the record for me, because I, I obviously wasn't at the radio at that particular time. It's of a particular time as well, isn't it, that yes. piece of music? You can absolutely tell when it was recorded. It's, uh, I suppose it must be 1930s. Yeah, and this was during the war. I mean, I don't know where I was during the war. I have very little memory of it except at my nan's place in Chiswick because she had a, a a bomb shelter, an Anderson shelter in the garden, and we used to go down in there, and I wasn't scared of it. I thought this is an adventure, you know. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. what was going on. I was, I was, what, I was 41 I was born, so I was... By the end of the war, I was three or four. So I, I do remember a little bit, but I remember the siren noise at the petrol station had, had a siren that went off. But I don't remember the war. I remember it afterwards when I played in the bomb sites. Which were everywhere, weren't they? I mean, I remember in the 60s, they oh, were yes. still there. Yeah, and the prefab houses and all that, quick houses they put up and all that. So it must be very strange then. Your yes. mother, for example, had to bring you up. She had no help. And your father went off before you were born? Oh, yes, before I was born, yes. Um, he had right. to have come back, I've worked this out, sometime in August 1940 for me to be conceived. Either him or the milkman, wasn't it? So um, <laughs> so uh, my mum and dad had a very strange relationship. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Uh, and dad was a good-looking man. They weren't compatible. He was slightly Victorian. She was a go, 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 go out and party. Right. So it didn't work. Uh, it really didn't work. Um, I learned so much about this after they both died because uh, I found letters and all sorts of stuff. 
which were very interesting. What kept them together then? You? Me. Dad wanted, always wanted to marry mum. And from what I understand from her sister, she only married dad because she didn't think he'd come back. Ah. Uh, a, a lot of that went on, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Something for you to long for when you're away. Yeah, I, I, mean, I can tell you how good the marriage was because I don't know what the wedding anniversary day was. They never celebrated it, as far as I could tell. Right. And they stayed together. Oh, well, uh, I was about 26, 27 when they separated in the end. I had three brothers and they came uh, nine, 10 and 11 years after me. So um, I do not understand their relationship at all, mm. why they did this, why dad wanted to do this. I, he was Victorian, so he wanted a, a family. And he was so happy having four boys. That for him was number one, you know. So in fact, the relationship was in a way more of a duty. It was a duty. Than, than a passion. Yeah. And, I, and another thing I learned after, after they passed away, uh, dad had written a letter to my mum. Uh, saying he's found somebody else out in Germany, his secretary in Germany, oh, and he wanted to stay with her, but he wanted me. To go back to him? Yes, wanted me. And mum refused. And so he came back to her. And this woman, this German secretary, it was his German secretary in, in Berlin, I believe. I've seen a picture of her. It's quite an attractive woman, but there you go. That happened. <laughs> so I was this, I don't know what you call me. I was the... Uh, the glue between them, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was extraordinary. And of course... I learned about mum in the uh, in the war. She worked at a place called Antoine's. It was the ladies' hairdresser in Dover Street, just up Piccadilly. And it was a posh place. She used to do the Duchess of this and the, the what's its hair. All these these hairs, you know, very upmarket. <laughs> and she used to like to party. In fact, I was told she went out with George Raft a few times. The actor. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she I've got photos of her. She was she was a stunning woman. I don't, I don't know what happened to me, but there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the milkman's fault. Yes, it is. She had a, <laughs> she had apparently a very good time during the war. Hence, my auntie Jean said she looked after me at my nan's place. That's what happened to me during the war. That's why I want teddy bear's picnic to remind me of those times, which for me were fine. I had no idea. I'm all right. You know, I'm, I'm being fed. Yeah. It's strange to look back afterwards, isn't it, and sort of go, well, do you know what? I was happy. Yes. That I was never mistreated. I didn't no. feel as if I wasn't loved. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No. I don't remember. I don't remember my dad giving me a cuddle. Mum used to, and the occasional kiss. But it, I wasn't, it was, wasn't a physical thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure that so many people were in those days, though. But, I think it, they'd been brought up by Victorians. Yes. And, yeah. and so their attitude was quite different. Oh, yeah. Dad went to work. Mum stayed at home. That was the thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But my mum was cleverer than that. She was a very clever lady. I mean, she thought of laundrettes before laundrettes. Right. There was a shop around the corner uh, in uh, from where we lived. Mm. Had a row of about 20, 15, 20 shops. And one came vacant. She said to Dad, I've got a very good idea. I know this will work. If we bought, say, four washing machines and put them in this <laughs> shop, because people haven't got washing machines. They, they're, no, they're doing it in the sink. Them. Couldn't no. afford them. And we, they can come in our shop and wash those things. He said, no, no way, no way. Those years before <laughs> the laundrettes came. Uh, <laughs> Who's going to show their smalls in public? True. Yes. And Victoria, yes. you don't do that. Don't take your washing out in the street. Yeah. No, no, quite. Yeah, she had that idea. Brilliant. Yeah, I remember that. That was probably very late 40s. So when you say they lived quite separate lives, your yes, parents, yes. what were the things that they were keen on then? Was there nothing shared? Uh, they used to play bridge together. Oh. Dad, Dad uh, after the war, he got a job at Harrods in the furniture department, mm -hmm. which he eventually became chief. He was one of those guys who became chief buyer and all that sort of thing. And they liked a game of bridge. And they, we used, they used to go to the um, the Harrods Club uh, in Barnes. There was a, they had a, I know it, yeah. Yeah, they used to go there and play bridge a lot which was mm. useful to me because they taught me bridge, which became very useful in my teenage years because <laughs> at the studios, I'd play poker against a, a props boys, a 12-year-old, and take their money because I, I, could, I could do cards and remember the cards and then got me through school and everything. That I used to gamble my way through life. I, only, <laughs> only in certainly bits and, you know. So what did your father like to do on his own then? Well, Dad used to do absolutely nothing but walk the dog. He, he had, we always had Alsatians, German Shepherds. Uh, and he liked to walk the dogs. He had one friend, or used to call him Uncle Mac, and he worked in the optical department in Harrods. And he would, they were friends, and he lived in Chiswick, and they sort of saw each other occasionally. He didn't have friends. My father did not have friends. Mum had reams of them. Mm. She liked a little drink and go down to the Riverside Club. Or whatever. Dad hated that because she should be at home doing all this stuff. Yes. And they got to the stage, Michael, when my brothers were seven, eight, and nine, we sit around the dinner table. Mum and Dad would not talk to each other. Uh, Ask your mother to pass me the salt. 
Oh, and that sort of stuff was going on. By then, I was 19, 20, wanted to leave home, yeah. and, I, and I couldn't. I didn't want to leave it because of my, my brothers. I had to be there because uh, it was very unpleasant. Um, I, I stayed till about 24, I think, something like that. Mm. Then I went. I couldn't take it anymore. But then, then by that time, Ian, the youngest, you know, he was old enough to look after himself. Yeah. And your career was starting. So, I mean, let's put Teddy Bear's picnic into the time capsule yeah. as your you first under, thing. You understand why it's there. Yeah, yeah. I do. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Right. Okay, so what's the second thing then, Larry? Well, the second thing, well, ah, it's got to be Clive Marshall. Clive Marshall was a student at Corona Academy where I was. Mm-hmm. Knew each other reasonably well, but I went for an audition at the Theatre Royal Stratford East. I travelled all the way on the central line out to Stratford, asked my way, where's, where's the theatre? And you had to work your way through terraced houses and streets and that and there was the theatre and I got there Where, where's the stage door walk round Angel Lane I couldn't find a stage door I thought well it must be where the main entrance is where you walk in you go and buy a ticket and go in so I went in there there's nobody about <laughs> I thought what's going on here uh, it was absolutely freezing cold so there was a there was always a green bench on the on the right hand side of it all the way along the theatre there so I sat on this green bench I felt I must have been there for three days but it wasn't it was probably ten minutes if that and nobody came. There's nobody about. So I thought, oh, suck this. I was getting nervous because I thought, I'm going to meet Joan. And I had a reputation, you know, I thought of seeing Joan. I said, I'm going. I left. And I walked back to the station. I went. I went. I'm oh. not going. So I, I walked back to the station. I get to, get to Stratford Station. Quite a long corridor, actually, to get to the central line there. Mm. And then when you get the central line, there's stairs up to it. And I walked up the stairs. And who should be coming down but Clive Marshall? <laughs> he said, well, have you been in the audition? I said, no, I, I didn't fancy it. He said, oh, come and keep me company. <laughs> thank you, Clive. Oh, the sliding doors. And I've never seen him since that day to thank him. I owe him everything. Yes, you would have gone away. That would have been it. I've never got in that theatre. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Clive has to be there because um, mm. I owe him my, um, my later career. Because I'd done a lot yes. of work up before then, up until that time, you know. I started as a seven-year-old. I did my first film when I was seven. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah, it is extraordinary. There's was knock on the door. I don't know where I was at the time. And the next thing I know, um, I don't know his mum or dad. No, it must have been dad coming because said, uh, somebody says, do you want to be in a film? <laughs> and I said, I well, I didn't know what a film was. I'd never seen a film. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll be in a film. And I, I'm amazed Dad did this, to be honest. So um, it was arranged that I should go along and be in this film. Uh, and it was at Denham Studios. I went to this place in Chiswick, which I now know was the Corona Academy's offices. Mum took me, I remember, a whole lot of other boys there. And uh, we waited. It must have been about 6 in the morning, 6.30, very early. And there was a sort of small coach outside. And all us 10, 12 boys got in this coach and went off to Denham Studios, you see? <laughs> Brilliant. And I can say to this moment, hand on heart, when I walked into the actual studio itself, I had this the newly thing, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd. I mm. smelt that studio and I can still smell it today. That amazing, you know, you know the, the old studios with all the soundproofing all of them and, the, and, the, <laughs> yeah. and the smell of the stuff they put on the scenery. And it was brilliant. I thought, this was amazing. We had this. I didn't know at the time, but we had this <laughs> chaperone called Gladys Gowans, Mrs. Gowans. She was a dragon. <laughs> we were made to sit in the line, you know, back at back of the stage there before we went on. And because uh, all the other boys had, they were professionals. They had books and crayons and things to do. I came with nothing. Yes. So, so I'm sitting there and I don't know how I did it, but I got away from Mrs. Gowans. <laughs> I took a walk around the background the studio. I was in, in, in awe of this place. And when I got around the back, I found this couple kissing at the back. I didn't know who they were, no idea. Anyway, I go on set, and eventually we're told, right, we're going to go for a take now. And the standing lady goes out, and in comes this young girl. The one who's been kissing? Yes. Ah. And uh, we do this scene, da-da-da-da-da, and during the scene, this man comes in as well. (laughs) They they talk and da-da-da-da. I had no idea about this until many years later, (laughs) when I did see the film, it was Gene Simmons and Stuart Granger before they were married. Oh, right. They, yes, I was saying they were a couple, weren't they? So that was yeah. before. Before they were married. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I'd seen that. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I just thought, this is great, you know. Here I am, old people kissing out there. And all that yeah. Uh, that was my first day's filming. Wow. And from then onwards, I, when I was asked to go again and again, I, I did. And my mum was brilliant because... I can't tell you how many times I was sick at the school I was supposed to be at. Right, yes. And I have to say, there were some weeks 
later on, I was earning more money than my father. Oh, you know Lord. I mean? That would be slightly galling, wouldn't it? Yeah. For him, yeah. I should imagine. But yeah. yeah, Stuart Granger, or Jimmy Stewart, yeah. as I think his real name is. Isn't that right? I think his real name was Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yes. he changed it because of Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Mm. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Amazing. That's taking it back earlier, but the uh, Clive Marshall thing was uh, really important to me. How old were you then when you went to Stratford East? Uh, I was 21. Right. So, in fact, you'd been really before that what would have been regarded as a, as a young actor, a child actor. I was a young actor, yeah. I did an awful lot of television television plays and things and, mm. uh, and theatre. I mean, my first theatre when I was 12 was at Covent Garden uh, in the opera <laughs> of Fotsek. And I had to sing, your mother is dead. And that was my line. Now, I think we only did about four performances, as they did in those days at the opera, you know, at Covent mm-hmm. Garden. Do you see, I think that when you get those moments and it comes along and you go off, you go for those sort of things. Yes. You don't realise how that's going to change your life, do you? Yes. I know she's a great director. I know she's yes. done some interesting things, but you don't know what's coming. No. For a start, that you're going yes. to be in, oh, what a lovely war. Well, that's great. Look how lucky I was. The audition wasn't for what a lovely war. It's for a musical called What a Crazy World, written mm-hmm. by Alan Klein, lovely guy. And Jerry Raffles, who's the producer there, yeah. is the only thing he ever directed, which Joan always told him it was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he did that. And in that company, it was Harry H. Corbett. He was only going to do the first week of the, the, the musical because he'd got a, a BBC television series to go to. Hmm. So, yeah, Steptoe. So, and uh, Glyn Edwards took over. That's right, Glyn Edwards took over. But also in the cast was Brian Murphy. Oh, lovely Brian Murphy. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Brian. Now, he was going to direct the next play that was going to be on there. Mm-hmm. And during the run of this thing, I think we ran for about, usually ran for about six weeks, something like that. Brian said to me, I'd like you to be in the play I'm going to direct next. Would you like to do it? Of course. I said, yeah, yes, please. It's all, it's all going well here. Mm-hmm. So I got a very little, tiny little part in this play called, um, it's in the book. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's um, it. We won't tell them. Then they'll have to. No, don't, don't yeah. tell anyone. Buy it, buy it to find out what the what the play was. Uh, high, high Street China. High Street oh, you've China ruined story. it now. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, don't buy it. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> so rehearsal start for that. Um, as we're playing at uh, night to the other one, this is really great. I'm spending my life in this theatre. Mm. I didn't need to sleep. And while we're in rehearsals, I think it's Paddy O'Connell was in it. He he had to leave for some unknown reason. Brian said, take over that part. <laughs> so there I'm playing a lead part in this play. Next thing I know, um, I get a call, uh, Jerry wants to see you in his office when we're on. I thought, oh, Christ, what have I done? So <laughs> up I go to Jerry's office. He says, I'm talking to you in confidence, Larry. Said, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Fine, fine. He said, you're not to say anything, but Joan is coming back to direct and she wants you in, in the piece. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes, please, yes, please. So, happened to be, oh, it's a lovely war. Oh, it's one of the things that, change the nature of theatre. Yeah. It's a turning point in theatre, isn't it? Absolutely. A turning point for me as well. But heavens yeah. above, there's me staying on to do yet another one, you know? Yeah. But the thing was, we come to the um, the first read, the read-through. I hadn't really been introduced to Joan that much. I think she nodded. And I believe I'm one of the few actors who's never auditioned for her. She just took me on. Wow. Because everybody auditions for her. Yeah. Uh, so I've been sent the script, wrote a lovely war, and I'm to play Johnny Jones. I read through the script. I'm on almost every page. It's all about him going to war. And all this. <laughs> I think, I'm, I'm, I'm like this. It's fantastic. So we sit down reading in the green room and we get halfway through and um, and Joe says, right, let's stop for a cup of tea now and uh, go away for 10 minutes and come back. Mm-hmm. So we go down. I go away thinking, oh, okay, all right, because Murphy was it. Brian Murphy was in it. And a couple of the lads from What a Crazy World were in it as well. So I knew a couple of people. I think I've done done quite well now. I'm reading this well, you know. (laughs) We come back, uh, and pardon my language in a minute, Joan's words were, this is a load of fucking crap, isn't it? (laughs) And I'm sitting there thinking, no, it's not. I'm very good. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. Oh, Lord. So she was just going to throw the whole thing out? She wanted the title. She didn't want the play. Which is a brilliant title. Yeah. Now, that's the way I saw it. Others saw it differently, but I, I know what I saw and because I saw under the pressure of what I was going to be in this play, you know, I was going to be Johnny Jones. And now you have no idea who you're going to be. No, I'd, now I'm sent down on stage to learn Row, Row, Row or something, yeah. a song. With, oh, with, she, with famously, she famously sort of improvised that play, didn't she? Oh, she did. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. I don't know when she slept. She had a little office up the top there, at the top of the dress circle, and she'd come down every morning 
with the pages of new script that she'd written. Mm. She said, let's work on this now. So you, she'd do that all the time and then at the same time had that ability to sort of go, we've spent an hour on this, I don't like it, let's get rid of it. Oh, abs- absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, uh, she got rid of some actors too as well. well it's, a, it's a tough business when you're working yeah, with people like that. Yeah, do not know how I got away with it, but no. she, she obviously liked me and I could sing and dance a bit, I could play the piano and all that. I think she enjoyed that about me, you know, mm. um, I don't know. There you go. The Christmas trenches scene. Christmas trenches scene. Which is scene, yeah. probably the most famous scene in the play. It, it is, yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Or we spent we spent a long time on that scene with Joan. Mm. I had the ideas of Joan. I said, um, why don't I play the harmonica before we start to get that feeling? She said, Oh, that's a good oh, idea. Lovely. And then hearing the Germans in the, the, over the back, yeah. this voice singing, and then we get up and meet them in the middle. No. But that sort of daring thing that when you're all dressed as Pierrot's, weren't you? The, the yes, original we're costumes. Pierrot's. That's yes. right. I mean, so so rather than sort of going, let's go for it, oh, so looking all sort of uh, meaty no. and realistic, it, you go. It's no, helmet, it's hats. Yeah. Pierrot kind of hats. And you put that on, and then you become the character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's what we've done as Pira. As, as Vic Spinetti said at the beginning, let's play the ever popular war game. That's what we were doing. <laughs> he was so generous with his time, Victor. Wickspin, mm. we used to call him. <laughs> Wickspin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, brilliant, brilliant, Fantastic. lovely man. Well, God bless Clive Marshall. That's a thank lovely you. I can't, I can't thank him enough. Yeah. No. Because I, I was in the famous drill scene as well, you see. Yeah. How did they work that out then, the drill scene? During rehearsals, um, Joan got in RSM Britain, who was a very famous sergeant major with a very loud voice, who mm. was often on television. And he came in to drill the men, uh, genuinely drill the sword, because Joan wanted to look, you know, like the soldier and would march properly and all that sort of stuff and how to do slope arms. And it was frightening. And some of us started giggling and laughing. And he went bananas at him. And Joan, <laughs> Joan was furious at that. It was only for a, a morning, I think. We did that, thought no more about it. Then I think it was the very first night at Stratford. What you had backstage was your box. And in that box were all your props. And that was sacrosanct. Nobody but nobody must touch those except you. They're yeah. your, when Because the show was props and this stuff. And especially the starting because Joan changed everything every bloody day. <laughs> now, I got a note. Joan did lots of notes before this performance. Say, find yourself a boater and a cane and then march on behind Brian after Avis has sung Make a Man of Any One of You. <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about. No, I think Jesus Christ I've got enough going on to know what's happening. What's, what's this? So this is completely unrehearsed. Totally unrehearsed. <laughs> I was the only one that didn't know what was going on. There were four of us. There was there was Murray Melvin, Brian, me, Griff Davis. Yeah, the four of us. Hmm. So I said, Brian, what's going on? Said, I, I don't know. I don't know. Said, I've got to march on behind. He said, Well, yeah, do it. I, I've got to march on behind Murray. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Don't worry, it's only the opening night. Yes. <laughs> so Avis said, make a man of any one of you. She walks off and we march on. I think, what are we doing here? <laughs> suddenly, from out the other side comes Vic doing his gibberish. Oh, being the sergeant major. In gibberish, in total gibberish. Brilliant. So we're all standing there, don't know what, what, he, what we're supposed to do. And of course it brought the house down. Yeah. Genuine. I had no idea what was, that's shown. Trusting you, you see. You go on, do it. No, I not a clue. Yeah. See, that first night, that would have been just accidental, would have happened. Yes. And then, of yes. course, you've got to try and recreate it and make it look as accidental. That is the trick. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't good at that. I got, be- <laughs> I-, I got better. I got better because I knew there were glass. And you mustn't do the last. Don't do it. Just be that yeah. vulnerable person not knowing what the hell is going on. Yeah. You know? yeah. That was the drill scene for me. I know Murray must have known because he marched on and he knew where to stop. Right. And I, and I know Griff Davis knew what was going to happen mm-hmm. because at the end he got himself so worked up, he jumped off the stage and chased a programme girl around the, around the thing. <laughs> that, that, was, that was set up. Right, yes. Now, but I wasn't aware of all this. No. I was the one that Joan put on there to be know what the hell was going on. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. You worked. No rehearsal wow. at all, promise you. What an amazing thing. What an amazing yeah. thing for a director to do. Yeah, she trusted she, she trusted her clowns. She used to call us clowns. She trusted her clowns. Yeah. yeah, fabulous. I could talk to you about every moment of it because it's uh, yeah. it is absolutely theatre history. It is theatre history. I'm really delighted. Is. And you yeah. took it everywhere, didn't you? You went well, well. We went to Paris. Went to the West End, of course. Then then we went to Broadway with it. Yeah. Good lord. No wonder it's in there. But yes. Yeah. Uh, Clive, that's the man. We put him in. It's amazing, isn't it? Changed my life. Yes. But we've done two things, so we have yes. to move on to number three. Right, ad break. And remember, any breakages will have to be paid for. See you in a second. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. That's the ads done for now. You can get this podcast without ads, of course, if you pay a small monthly fee and join Acast Plus. You'll also get a bonus podcast every week. Still, you've had the ads, and uh, it's a bit late to tell you that, isn't it? So let's get back to Larry Dan and the rest of his choices of things to go in a time capsule. Three, I think, what should I do? I, th- I think I have my um, first bill script, because uh, that came, the agent phoning up saying, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> well, we should know you're my agent. She said, uh, she said well, there's a television series just starting and they'd like to come and do a scene for them. Would you do it? I said, of course I will. She said, they'll bike you around a script. The script was biked around to me. I looked at it, it was a page of dialogue. I looked at it, they're like, yeah, I can learn that in no time at all. That was all right. Going the next day and uh, it was the bill. And uh, I had a scene with Eric Richard who had only just uh, finished this. We'd done a play at Stratford East called Better Times. Um did this, thought nothing of it. And that was it. Did it and went away. Went home afterwards. I thought no more about it. And a few weeks later, the mum asked, can I come and do another one? <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And how many did you do in total? I think 230 in the end. Good Lord. Yeah. I, I did something that I said I would never, ever do. I never, ever wanted to be in a series forever. I don't mind doing six episodes or something, whatever, but I didn't want to be tied down forever and be known as Fred Bloggs for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm not sure it's necessarily a good idea, but I'm with you on that, yeah. When I was 18, I got another call from the agent. Uh, could I go up to uh, Granada to do a pilot? There's a pilot being done. I said, well, of course I can. So um, he sent me a script, and uh, I had these scenes, blah, uh, blah, 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 and I needed somewhere to stay. And there's another guy who said, um, he said I, I don't know where you stay. I said, I have no idea. He said, well, I know there's a, a pub down the road. I think they've got rooms. So we went down there, and we shared a room. Mm-hmm. And that was Bill Roach, William Roach. <laughs> so we shared a room. Who you would have thought at that time would have been a similar actor to you. He was a working actor. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we shared, we shared a room for the week. It was called Forizal Street then. Right. That's the name of it. And if I'd had that script now, oh, kept it. What, the first script of Coronation Street? Worth a fortune. <laughs> a fortune. I never kept these damn things. No. I didn't keep anything. No, so I, I I played Dennis Tanner with um, the the legendary Pat Phoenix. She played Mum, and Bill Roach played his part, and uh, um, Philip Lowry did my part. Dennis Tanner, and he, he was much better than that. he was. A, <laughs> well, he's a genuine Lancastrian, yes, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I was doing E by Gorman, and you know, it's no no good to anybody. I know why I didn't get it. Yeah, that's yeah. and I'm glad I didn't because my God, I could not be Bill Roach. That's all he's ever done. I know. I became an actor because I liked the variability of it. That's it, yeah. yeah. I always compare myself to a, a plumber or a carpenter. You mm-hmm. know, you don't know what your next job is and you do your best to do it. You get, you know, and you go on and you, you don't remember who all these people you've done things for, but you enjoy the work. Yes, absolutely. And you are well aware of the uh, the whole serendipity of it and the, the, yeah. the, the coincidence and accidents that happen along the yeah. way. And you think and, about that, somebody saying, you know, well, they've sent you a script, you want to have a go at it. And you go, yeah, yeah, all right. And you turn up and do these things. But many times I've done that. 
And you have yeah. no idea, do you? Sometimes you walk in and go, oh, my word. Oh, I think this is going to be big. Yeah. Then generally they say, well, that's lovely. Thank you very much. And everybody yeah. else carries on. Come. That's right. <laughs> oh, the disappointments in life are terrible, aren't they? Yes, that was my first Bill script. And of course, it went on for quite a while. Till, uh, the brilliant not- thing about the Bill is that you will have shared the Bill with almost every actor of that generation. Everybody's been in it. I've done it. Everybody I know has done it at some point. Yeah. But you were constant. Yeah, that's right. Lesson learnt there was... Um, which I was well aware of, because you go and do things like um, a Dixner Dot Green or something like this. There's an episode of that, mm. and you're you're the new one, and you want to feel comfortable. And if actors don't come and introduce themselves, as Jack Warner did, I learned from him, he came and introduced himself and said, "Thank you so much for being." In that. Oh, how lovely! I, I learned that, and, and that's mm-hmm. what I think ninety nine point nine percent of us did on the bill. Because yeah. you come in, you've got to be made welcome with the actors. You can't say, "Do you know your lines?" and walk away, whatever. Can't do that. No. I should say, if we've got a scene together, you know, I'd say, do you want to go through it before we get on set? Because I, I like to do, do it as well. That's mm. very important. It is very important because actually, particularly as the, the cast would have got to the point where they were they were very quick. They were yes. used to working quick. It was made yes. quickly, wasn't it? You had to oh, sort of yeah, turn up yeah. prepared oh, and yeah. go on and do it, you know. Oh, yes. Hard work. Yes and no. Yes, you had, had a lot of time off, you know. You weren't in every episode, of course, and no. uh, you were always on something every week, even if it was just a cough and a spit, which I got fed up with in the end, because I seemed to be doing the same bloody thing every week after a while. I got really fed up. Okay, all right, let's put your first Bill script in. That's number three. Yes, that's number three. Number now, three. Um, funny enough, what I'd like to put in is, uh, can, you, can you see that? I can, yes. Is it Laurel and Hardy? It is, yeah. signed personally to me. Wow. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I, I went to the Chiswick Empire. I, I saw them at the Chiswick Empire mm-hmm. in their very last last time they performed because Oliver Hardy died not long after it. It's what the Steve Coogan film is based on, isn't it, that tour? He did that well. Mm. The best love story I've ever seen, that was. Uh. I'm a huge, huge fan. I've got all their films. I've got, you know, I've got that a lot. I put that in there because... I got an audition for a musical called Blockheads about Laurel and Hardy. Mm. It would be at the Mermaid Theatre. And for me, that was the most exciting thing. In the world. I, had to, I had to get this. <laughs> I had to get this. It was a, a small cast. It was about a cast of 10. I needed it. Not to play Laurel and Hardy. That was, you know, it was already, already cast. Mm. I was to play Hal Roach and uh, Stan Laurel's father. Right. That's what I went up for. And... Uh, I got it, and I was so excited. <laughs> I mean, it, it was brilliant. I was really excited. Uh, it almost has to go in my uh, hell one, but not quite, because the production was awful. Uh. We had lovely music and lyrics, brilliant music lyrics. The book itself was total crap. Mm. The guy, Michael, named Michael Landwehr, he couldn't write the alphabet. <laughs> it was dreadful. <laughs> and I very foolishly, first rehearsal. You didn't tell him, uh, did you? I, uh, not yet. We had a read-through. Now, prior to this, we'd been uh, costumed, got the costume, all the best things were going to be bought, all this sort of stuff. Everything was perfect. And uh, we'll stay with our scripts. I remember I was on, on, on the floor, you know, kind of change. You know, you do changes, right? Mm. Some script changes. He said, so Arthur Whitelaw was the um, the director. I got to know him as Arthur White Lie. Um, <laughs> he said, um, right, on the first page, it says, Blockheads, the comedy about Long and It's not the comedy, it's a comedy. <laughs> Thank God he changed that. <laughs> that was the first of about 100 of those. Oh, no. There should be a comma after that oh, word. Um God. That must have been so difficult for you, having come from this tradition where you've got a director who would say, well, this isn't any good, let's chuck it out, let's make it better. Oh, yeah, Jonah got it, it would have been brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It it was absolutely terrible. So at the end of that, we had a read-through, and uh, and Mark had to, oh, Laurel, I don't remember names, Mm. who played Laurel. He was lovely. The first scene was him and me, father and son, telling him what he should do, and I might be singing a song type thing. Yeah, he's a lovely actor, Mark. Yeah, Mark Hadfield. Mm. Lovely. He's a good bloke to be with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, we went out, and I said, Mark, I said, this scene we've got, it's absolutely dreadful. It, it's, it, it, it's constructed in totally the wrong way. It's there, but it just needs changing about. And it, you know, it, so the thing flows. He said, I agree. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Tonight I'll, uh, 
I'll, I'll just rough it out another way and we'll come in the morning and we'll, we'll talk about it. He said, yeah, we did that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Arthur Whitelord was sorting something else out. And we went to him and said, uh, Arthur, we hope you don't mind, but we just done a little work on that first scene. I'd like to show it to you. So we did it. He said, oh, yeah, that's good. That's much better. Mm. Thought, yes, yes. I thought, yeah, we, we'll get through this. Yeah. After three or four days, we're going to run Act One. And Michael Landry is going to come and watch it, the writer. Mm. So we run Act One. And at the end, there's a, there's a pause and um, there's chat, chat, chat with the back now. Then. Right, can you go away for half an hour and have a cup of tea while that sort of thing? So go away. We come back and Lanweir stands up and says, nobody changes a single word of my script. Mm-hmm. Death of the show. We lasted two weeks. Sometimes actors are wrong, sometimes writers are wrong, but yeah. it should be a collaborative art. I oh, think and I understand the fact that somebody's taken a lot of care over something and you can't just say, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to change it. There are certain rules, but if everybody is agreeing that something's working, we've all been in that situation, Larry. We've all been there where you sort of go, this isn't working. I, I like to fiddle with things. And I'm always yes. saying, you know, wouldn't that, this be a funnier line? Or couldn't we swap that round, make that funnier? But at least you work on it with somebody, don't yeah, you? You yeah. work together. You work together. Landwehr, no, didn't want to know. Uh, the proof was in the pudding. He had um, it was They were Americans, Arthur Whitelaw and uh, Michael Landwehr. They got a lot of American money involved, a lot of, a lot of rich ladies with blue rinses. And mm-hmm. They all came across for the first night, and we knew it was going to be awful. <laughs> and we had, a, we had a very expensive first night party uh, at uh, the Criterion in Piccadilly Circus. is a Lovely. big place. First night party. Art Deco, isn't it? Yes, yeah, beautiful. beautiful. They're all there, the flunkies are there, the canopies and all this sort of stuff is going on. And then, wow, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and all these blue rinses people were there, but the two people weren't there were Landwehr and Whitelow. They didn't turn up. Mm. And the crits came, you know, the crits come out that night, don't yes. they, basically? Yeah. And uh, the Americans just left in despair. Uh, <laughs> it's awful, isn't it, when you, you carry on? Particularly if you're excited about something. Yeah, you, oh, you, know, you must have been thrilled to be in. I'm thrilled. I'm, this is me. This is who I... This, these, these are the funniest double acts ever. Yes. And you've hung on to that signed thing dedicated to you from those two great geniuses. So when was that? In the 50s? This is 1957. I was 16 and I waited for them at the stage door. Amazing. I was asked to become a son of the desert, which is the Laurel and Hardy fan club, which I did, of course. And somebody there said to me, name your price. I said, no, you're not okay. He said, name your price. I said, why? He said, you have got Oliver Hardy's autograph. He never used to sign it himself. He used to have a stamp. Oh. This is actually his actual autograph. It's not a stamp. Name your price. That and the first coronation script, you could retire. You're right. (laughs) The first bill script as well. Yes, quite. Not as as valuable now, but it will be. Oh, well, if we'd only known all these things, but there we are. So that's the fourth thing I'll keep, yes. That's a beautiful thing to put in there. Yes, yes. The wonderful Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel. I love the fact that Stan Laurel later in his life, there are all those stories of people sort of writing to him or even knocking on his door when he lived in a... Door. And he'd go in and give them advice and read their scripts yeah. and sort of say, what you need to do here is change that. Yes, yeah. Just so oh, generous. He was, he was. And he was so in awe of Babe Hardy. He just thought mm. he was the best thing in the world. All Hardy did was turn up, do his bit and go off and play golf. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, that's all he needed to. But uh, Yeah, Stan did everything else. He, he wrote it, he directed it, he edited it, he did everything, you know. And, uh, and his yeah. detail is something yeah. to be studied, even to this day. I yeah. mean, what's the scene where he basically eats a boiled egg? That's all he does. Oh, yes. That's all he does yes. is sit there and eat a boiled egg and yeah, put yeah. salt on it. And Oliver Hardy just sits and stares at him the whole way through. It's hysterically yeah. funny. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. Mm. brilliant. Their timing was magic, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so that's four lovely things we put in there. But unfortunately, we have to now choose the thing that you want to put in that you're going to forget. 1995. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning of 1995, I was working at Stratford with Ken Hill, who took over from Joan, one of the people who took over from Joan, fine writer. We did 21 different productions together, Ken and I. Wow. Um, Ken had written, he'd written many a thing, but this one was a production of Zorro, musical of Zorro. Mm -hmm. Big musical, big cast at Stratford. American money coming in, everything was wonderful. But Ken was very ill. He, he got a cancer, uh, a lining of the heart, which was making it harder for him to breathe, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, cut this awful long story short, uh, and, and at the end of the second week, Ken had died. Oh. So uh, his wife, uh, Tony Palmer, Tony Hill, was in the show as well. And he wanted the show to go on. So we continued without him, uh, with his assistant, Peter Rankin, who did a great job. We put this thing on. 
It was a good show. The Americans, because Ken had died, went out, left it, left us to, to die. Oh, yeah. And during the run of the show, it opened at the beginning of February, I think. It, uh, Ken died early January, and the beginning of February. Anyway, my mum had a, a, I think, an 84th birthday on, on the 19th of February, and she had a little party in her flat in Chiswick. And unfortunately, I, when I left, I had a bit of a row mum because she, she could get cantankerous, a bit rude to other people. Anyway, mm. I left dinner. Yeah. Following morning, I get a phone call from my brother, John. He said, I'm, I'm round at mum's. I've got to take her to the hospital, but I can't get in. I said, what do you mean? Well, I haven't got a key. Have you got a key to get into the flat? I said, yeah. I'd... So I drove around. It's about 15 minutes. Get there, go in. She's dead. She's died. Yeah. I said, oh. And I'd had this row. I'd had so so Eldest son, I, 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 I organised. <laughs> I phoned the police first and do the usual things. And I had a mate who's a... a He's an undertaker. I phoned Alan. He's, he'd come round. And I realised I've got a show to do tonight because no understudies, sorrow. So I, I get everything organised and I left the theatre. I did the show. I didn't tell anybody. I did the show. And I thought, okay, right, carry on, carry on. Eventually it did come out that my mum had died. and I was, But I couldn't take a night off because I didn't have understudies. Now the big mm-hmm. part, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, on the last night of, of Zorro, I had to have my dog put down. Oh. So it's getting worse, 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 right? Yeah. And this is genuine. When we finished the show and the curtain came down, I collapsed. I went out. I'd gone. Mm. Doctor Theatre carried me through, but everything had gone. I was in a mm. terrible state. I don't remember much about what happened after, after this. I, I, I got home. Uh, then we we had Mum's funeral. Fine. And I'm I'm finding myself not able to even get out of bed sometimes or do anything. Mm. And I'm really bad. And then I get a call from a girl called Sean, who's my brother John's girlfriend. And she said, I, I can't wake John up. I said, what do you mean you can't wake him up? By this time, he had a beautiful barge on the Grand Union Canal. He had beautiful stuff. Um, he was on a, on a dodgy old barge because he and Sean were off to, he bought a uh, farm in France. They were off to France. As soon as she passed her driving test, they were going to France to live in this thing. Mm. She'd been out that morning, taken a driving test, passed, came back, and she couldn't wake him up. So I go around there. John's dead. No. That, for me, that was the end. I mean, I was in, well, I, I don't remember too much about many, many weeks and months after that. Liz tried her best on me. I couldn't do anything. It, the, my world of thought, this is 95. We're now in, that was June the 6th, John had died. I think it was sometime in early August, I hope it think it was. I said to myself, I've got to do something about this. I can't carry on like this. No. I'm going to go and see my doctor. So I went down the road, he went far down the road. I went to see my, to see my doctor and I, I went to the reception. She could obviously tell there's something wrong with me, but obviously I didn't, because I didn't realise. She said, oh, can I see, oh, no, I names, doesn't matter. Say Dr. Mitchell, can I, my, my Dr. Mitchell. She said, he's, he's not here at the moment. I said, oh, oh dear. And she said, well, look, hang on a second. I'll get Dr. Pennycook. I'd never seen her before. I went into Dr. Pennycook and I broke down. I, I, something I hadn't done up to then. I literally broke down. I tell her what was going on. I floods of tears and God knows what. I don't know how long I was with her. She was brilliant, and suddenly that the whole world is gone. I'd got rid of it because oh. I'd spoken to somebody who I didn't know, mm-hmm. and I I advise everybody if you're having real trouble, don't tell your best friend. Go and talk to somebody you don't know. <laughs> Put it on them. Unburden yourself. Unburden yourself. And I tell you what, it's the most amazing feeling. I came out of doctor's surgery. I because I remember. Sort of. It must have taken me, what, it's 200 yards to the doctor, 300 yards maybe. It must have taken me five, almost 10 minutes to get there because I mm. could hardly walk. Back in seconds, I unburdened myself. So 1995 has got to go as my bad. It was it was a terrible time. My analyst horribleist, as the Queen said. <laughs> yes. But how extraordinary that, because having told someone, in a way related the story of each of them, as you've just done to me. Yes, yes. And then can look at it as a whole and say, do you know what? This is not my fault. No, it's not my, no, but you, of course you take the blame. Obviously you do. You know, yeah. you, see, you feel almost as if you're cursed. You're yeah. the cause of it. It must be to do with me. Yeah. And then well, you look back at it and go, yeah. do you know what? This is just one thing after another and they're yeah. nothing to do with me. I didn't do it. It's an awful thing, but I don't have the responsibility of it. So you can let it go. Yeah. Well, you lose your mother, you lose your best friend, Gimli the dog, mm-hmm. and then you lose your middle brother, yeah. who was only 44 at the time. So thank you, Dr. Pennycook, as well. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I never saw her again. Didn't have to see her again. 
We will put that in there, but actually, it's yeah. to me, it's somewhat uplifting. It is uplifting at the end. Get through these things. Yes, you can. Yeah. 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 You can only describe your life, Larry, as a success story. I think I can. Anybody who's done what you've done and got where oh, you've got. I've had, I've had some wonderful successes, especially mm. especially because I love my sports. And when the bill was good for me for sport because uh, I played at Wembley and I played cricket with all the top professionals and all that sort of stuff because I love my cricket, played cricket. Things like that I got out of it. You know, who else could get that? Fantastic. Well, I look forward to reading the rest of the book. Oh, what a lovely memoir. Because just listening to you today, yes. it's so interesting and so compelling. So thank you, yeah. really. It's been lovely. Oh, no, it's lovely of you to do this. The only thing I'm annoyed about is that I've not worked with you. Yeah, that's, that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, would have been fun. Yes, you worked <laughs> in the bill and not with me. How dare you? <laughs> thank you for talking to me, Michael. That's bless your heart. You have been listening to... My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Larry Dan. There's a link in the written description of this podcast to Larry's autobiography. Oh, what a lovely memoir. I'm sure our chat will have whet your appetite. Please subscribe to this podcast. You just click the subscribe button on the podcast player you choose, and you'll get every new episode as they're released. Of course, it really helps if you rate us, highly, I hope, and possibly even write a complimentary comment or review. We really appreciate it, so thanks. We're on Twitter, slash X. I'd like to slash X, in fact. Instagram, Facebook, and Threads, if you'd like to follow us or contact us about anything. Or email us on mytimecapsulepodcast at gmail.com. If you get those bonus episodes, I'll sing that for you. That's put you off, isn't it? Right, you can hear the theme tune in its entirety on Spotify. It was composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music, another name for my producer and son, John Fenton Stevens, who made this cast-off production for Acast. Thanks to them for their support. I'll be back, as Arnie always said, when the line was crowbarred into every film he ever made, I think. So until then, keep well and healthy. In fact, exercise. Because if you exercise, you too could have a figure like mine. And it's a figure that some people have described as a million dollars. Unfortunately, it's all in loose change. Bye! Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 